Today, I'm speaking with Evelyn Combs and Dr. Jared Smith. Evelyn is a trained archaeologist and tribal administrator for the Healy Lake Tribal Council, an indigenous Alaskan community in which she was born and raised. Dr. Jared Smith, who was featured on this podcast before, is an archaeologist specializing in the history of the Diné people of interior Alaska and the Canadian subarctic. The three of us are discussing Jared and Evelyn's experimental archaeology work, their attempts to reconstruct methods of ancient Diné copperworking, and to understand its role in Diné stories and culture. My name is Sebastian Weatherby, and this is The Tell. Hey, Evelyn. Hey, Jared. <laughs> thanks, uh, thanks for taking the time. Pre-colonial metalworking in, um, in ancient North America isn't it's not exactly a popular topic in world history. And so I wanted to start by asking both of you how you got interested in the subject. Maybe, Evelyn, do you want to start? Just lay out what, what led you into this? Uh, when, when I was little, um, what sparked it? very, very initially was, uh, my uncles were building a steam bath and we had all the volcanic rocks mm-hmm. and I couldn't fathom how hot inside the fire it was getting. And then one of my uncles mentioned, oh yeah, if you threw metal in there, it'd melt. And that just stuck in my brain because these lava rocks get so hot and we pour steam on them and that's yeah. where the steam bath comes from. And so when I was like 12 or 13, uh, my, my uncle and my mom gave me my own cabin. And at that point I was like, I'm completely unmonitored. There's no nobody here telling me not to do this. And so I fired up my wood stove and I just started casting bullets because I was really interested in creating bullets and developing new types of bullets with different metals and in combination with things like uh, obsidian. Oh, cool. Yeah. And so I almost burnt my cabin down that first time because I almost, <laughs> almost melted my stove. <laughs> um and so I was like, all right, time to actually learn about this. It's very dangerous. Um, so I, I spent the next couple of years doing a lot of reading and a lot of uh, experimenting at home between my wood stove and a fire pit outside, just mixing metals with stone and different types of um, casting sets. Mm-hmm. And uh, then at some point around that time, my Uncle Fred had mentioned uh, that we traditionally did copper work as a people yeah. and we used to trade with the Copper River people, we would give them red ochre, among other things. And this ochre was very highly valued. And so when we would trade them this ochre, they would trade back to us the copper, yeah. which was also very precious. And uh, yeah, so I've always just been really interested in the way metal works. And that area along the Copper River, I guess sort of in the uh, um, Wrangell St. Elias mountains and i guess centered around the atna people right that it isn't just an area of metalworking but is sort of one of the 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 primary uh, what would you say hearts of indigenous metalworking in north america right they're very rich people yeah what is the what do we know about the uh the the age of that and its connection to other metalworking traditions in North America? There's sort of, as we understand it, there's about three different centers of, of copper working in North America, mm-hmm. um, excluding Mexico. And we won't get into Mexico or, or South America. That's a, a totally different ball game. There's um, the copper uh, from the Great Lakes 
region, um, and that's uh, found throughout uh, the United States in the um, uh, archaeological record. And, and that goes back uh, pretty far, um, and I'm not as familiar with uh, the literature on that, so I won't try to guesstimate ages because I could be easily wrong. <laughs> um, there's two spots up here in the north. One is here in um, Alaska in, in Yukon um, and the, the Alaskan and British Columbian coasts uh, with the, the Clinket um, traditional lands. And uh, the other place is uh, has to do with what's called the, the Copper Inuit um, in north central Canada. And they're interested because interesting because they had um, a native copper industry, uh, but at the same time they were also uh, trading for manufactured copper from the Vikings in Greenland. Hmm. So, um, with archaeologists that are working in uh, North Central Arctic Canada, um, which there is not a lot, so it's uh, some of this art, this literature is pretty old. Um, they have to distinguish between uh, native copper and manufactured sheep copper that's being traded um, hmm. with the Vikings a thousand years ago, which is, and that goes on for about 200 years, that trade with the Vikings um, and bringing copper um, in. So that's pretty interesting. We don't really know um, if there's any connection between that and the copper yeah. industry here What's in Alaska. What's going on in Alaska? Um, there was definitely trade networks going back and forth, and mm-hmm. who knows... But, you know, um, there, there's no copper coming in from that area that we know of, but, you know, there could have been ideas. Um, yeah, yeah. Copper uh, artifacts enter the Alaskan record about 1,500 years ago, maybe a little bit earlier than that, but about after about 1,000 years ago, they start to get kind of popular. Um, but copper was a prestige item, far more um, expensive than it is today. Uh and uh, so with such an expensive item, you were not likely to lose it ever. So I often wonder, you know, uh, how long was copper being carried around and worked with by, uh, you know, indigenous Diné here before someone finally got around to losing a piece and it entering <laughs> into the archaeological record. <laughs> but yeah, I, th- I think Bree, uh, Dr. Doring, found some of the oldest uh, copper in the archaeological record for the Tanana Valley at Quartz Lake, and that was about a thousand years old. Wow. That's uh, Brianna Daring from uh, uh, now the University of Wyoming. Yeah. And, and so I imagine that also, as a prestige item, the knowledge and tradition of exactly how to produce it must be a pretty important thing to pass down generation to generation, right? Um, I'm, I'm sure it has a probably a really important role in in stories and oral tradition right um, right yeah I think uh, let's see dr. Corey Cooper um, he's done a lot of uh, studies a lot of most of this anthropological studies on copper here in, in the interior and um, he uh, he discusses how uh, the knowledge of uh, copper uh, was passed down through almost a copper shaman it was it was considered to be a, a sort of magical trade, and and uh, these persons who had that knowledge had to isolate themselves away from the tribe, especially when they were um, working with the copper. And uh, Evie could uh, probably talk a little bit more about the importance of this. But uh, when uh, when you're engaging um, with an external power powerful power source. Um, 
if you did not know how to interact with it properly or you might you yourself might not be powerful enough or in the right mindset enough to interact with it it it, it uh, becomes a toxic has mm-hmm. a toxic effect on you and those around you and so then they would pass that knowledge on uh, to their apprentices um, who may or may not be family members mm-hmm. but yeah there is sort of a, a familial element to that yeah and then two before I talk about that uh one interesting thing about the timelines that I've always really liked is copper also has a decay rate. So how much copper are we not seeing in the record because it simply is rotted? Um, so one thing that I personally would like to research in the future is uh, copper residue mm-hmm. in hearths because copper does leave a residue. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and it's so uh, prob- it's so in charge of where it's at essentially that if I were to introduce copper into my forge, I would not be able to appropriately or completely forge weld any other metal after that. And forge welding is welding. It's just the act of using a forge to do the welding instead of like a TIG or oxyacetylene setup. But so you have to have a copper forge. Yes. It can't just be your forge. Yeah. And that's not saying you can't forge in something after you use copper. It's just like anything beyond very basic smith work you're not gonna be able to accomplish yeah because that copper has totally contaminated your forge huh. um, but <laughs> for, for the shaman part of it um jared's right on point really that was a really good way to lay out this terminology without me having to spiritually like risk myself by saying anything that i shouldn't yeah um but basically with a lot of these Ath- athabascan practices they fall under what we call hutlani which is just the way we believe it's our belief system mm-hmm. essentially. And it means like the right way to do things. Yeah. And the wrong way to do things is in G. So like mm-hmm. if you were, if I stepped over you, that would be in G, that would be bad luck. So that's an example of something that's just in G. That's how we yeah, refer it just, to it. Yeah. Don't do it. So like a lot of these traditions, I believe are dying out because what Jared said is correct is, um, you have to be properly trained and you have to be like in a spiritual sense clean you have to be in the right mindset you had to have had preparation time mentally and emotionally uh what they call now as praying or meditating for long periods of time about what you were going to do because your intent directly reflects spiritually and physically how you complete the task mm-hmm. and if you're not doing it properly what you do could invoke wrath because the forces that we're touching don't care if you don't know how to do it. If you don't know how to do it, you shouldn't be doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's not a game and it's not something to be played with from, you know, a Dene standpoint. Yeah. It, it's yeah. very serious. And so I, I think a lot of these traditions and things are not being carried out because the elders understand that our way of life is it just no longer exists and so rather than poke at these forces like children it's better to just continue on and let these traditions pass and yeah and building off on that in it the Diné northern Diné traditional worldview all things are imbued with some level of life mm-hmm. some level of consciousness so nothing is um separated from that um, whether it's the microphones in front of us the computer um, yeah. animals uh, the air around us weather Weapons. forces everything has that and so um, 
everything has life and consciousness and everything has access to the power of the universe in differing levels. And so when you're speaking to something um, and about something, you're, you're calling that power into yourself and you're interacting with it. So there mm -hmm. was no concept of discussing something in the abstract. The way we're discussing things right now about copper, copper making and the traditional ideas about it mm -hmm. would not have been possible yeah, and our sort in of the past. Dry, like, sitting right. on the outside, sort of floating above kind of yeah. perspective. So we would have actually had to not been able to really discuss it until we started doing it. Yeah. 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 And so that's been part of what's so hard about getting elders to talk about the process, too, is um, on another project, I finally articulated this to an elder, and it was very blunt. It was very Dene of me, but I was just like, look, the context in which it's appropriate for you to give me this knowledge will never exist. So mm -hmm. I need, even though it feels in G, I need you to tell me about this or it's going to die with you. Right. And it was very blunt and it was very upfront and I did feel, I, I felt really guilty about it because it's a, it's kind of a mean thing to say, but I'm also just frustrated. I'm almost 30 and I don't understand 90% of my culture because we don't live like that anymore. We, right. You can't just be like, Hey, uncle Fred, let's go make a copper knife. It will never happen. Most native children are actually kinesthetic learners and that's because we don't verbally impart information mm -hmm. we show um so like when i was growing up i was eight years old before i cut any moose meat but i had spent the first eight years of my life watching my grandmother do it and they made sure when i was that age that all the kids watched like we were always with the adults and the elders especially and we spent all of our time just watching how they did stuff and i didn't realize it at the time but then i went to cut the meat and it was like i'd been doing it my whole life so everything I know about skinning moose, everything I know about, you know, what's supposed to be sacred has come from us actively partaking in, in the project. So yeah, it's, it's really hard to get an elder to sit down and be like, tell me how to make a copper knife. Yeah. Um, cause no one in the past two, three generations ever took them out to make one. This, uh, goes back a little bit coming full circle to the original question of how long is, has copper been used yeah um there's actually uh two different words for copper in mm -hmm. northern Diné, especially the alaskan Diné uh, languages and and the first one was was fairly descriptive and it was just almost like what we think of as a noun tsa, <laughs> and uh, uh it basically means tsi is is rock uh -huh. and tsa is like uh, excrement so rock excrement and uh, so yeah if you if you think <laughs> about like uh you know raw copper nugget it kind of looks bulbous and everything you know that yeah. could look a little bit like excrement um but also one thing i noticed was that if you've ever been in a berry patch a blueberry patch that a bear has gone through recently and when that happens bears are eating nothing black bears especially eating nothing but um blueberries their scat will take on a very shiny blue-green color. And 
that is exactly the same color as oxidized copper in, in, in natural formation. I mean, it looks <laughs> identical to it. And so um, there's a lot of uh, places in interior Alaska and um, uh, the Copper River area where these, this copper was just coming out of the ground um, in nugget form and also in oxidized form. And yeah. it's just this beautiful blue-green um, uh, oxidation all over quartz and stuff like that. And, and it's exactly the same color. And so the, the Diné knew they were recognizing copper um, for a long time, not necessarily using it, but when they started using it, the word changed, uh, chedi. And that means rock that which is being hammered. Mm-hmm. They were actually working with copper nuggets um, uh, for um, in the Middle East, uh, when people started working with copper, they were actually working with ore. Mm-hmm. Um, first and learning how to melt that down. Um, for the Diné, it was opposite. They were working with actual copper nuggets and hammering huh. that down um, into into a final artifact. Form. Is, this, is that just a matter of being lucky enough to have uh, raw copper nuggets sort of in the form you need them? You know, it, it's speculative, uh, you know, and <laughs> I, I think, uh, who knows, uh, who knows what happened when the first, uh, Diné person, you know, found that nugget and started, you know, deciding what to do with it. I think that, that presage is probably something we'll talk about in a moment, but I, I wanted to quickly ask one more question to kind of set the stage in people's imagination for this. I, I guess it's sort of a two-parter. I think they go together. One is what 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 is like the variety of tools that people made out of copper look like and was it all tools were there also you know jewelry and adornments or you know sculptures or like was it was it used for artistry at the same time and then the i guess the other piece of it i think is um when you talk about the sort of the spiritual like the the gravity of copper working and that it's it, the seriousness of it. Um, I'm curious what copper is sort of associated with. It, it, like if it's being used for spears and knives, does it have like a sort of a, a, an association with, with death or with violence? Or does it have an association with family and legacy? Or yeah, what, what sort of tone does it have as a, as a thing? That's um, a really neat question. Owning copper was a big deal. Like if you had copper, you mm-hmm. were you were rich. Um, and when I say rich, I don't mean monetarily. I mean rich in land, rich in resource, mm-hmm. rich in community, because that's how they gauged wealth, um, was how much could you provide for your clan, your tribe, your family. Yeah. That, that was how rich you were. And so as far as jewelry, I can't speak to that. I've never heard of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I do know that we like to get dressed up. Um, my my clan especially like we were very vain we like to look our best <laughs> um you know and we do that with color red was a big deal and so ochre was an always in high in demand mm-hmm. um for the copper knives though the story that i heard from my uncle i just remember these items were regarded as almost legendary um i don't know how long people would go between lives without seeing one physically hmm. um I also don't know if they were common enough that everyone had seen one at some point. But one of the stories that he told me that I just as is always on my mind for some reason is the story of the chief's knife. And he told me this story shortly after telling me about the two copper knives we had at our village that he had found in a dig. Um, and the story went, you know, from what I can remember, 
there were there was a, this village who heard about a chief or one of their relatives was going to be made into a leader. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they were asked to make the chief's knife. And for some reason, the person who was making this knife in the village was like, I can't make this knife case because I don't have the knife. And so the request went down to another village. And they they kind of scoffed at that. And they were like, okay, well, we'll make it. And in turn, they were scoffed at. They were like, you don't have the knife. How are you supposed to make the case? You don't know what this knife looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, and they made the case. And by the time that knife case had made it over to the village where the knife was, the copper knife, it fit perfectly because the chief's knife is so important that everybody who makes these things understands that it's done in this specific particular way. And so it just so happened that the request first went to somebody who just had no clue, just no clue about any of this because everyone else was just like, Oh yeah, that's, that's what a chief's knife looks like. And nobody was surprised that that it fit the knife (laughs) Yeah, because that's just how it's done. Um, but yeah, as far as being used for a bear spear um, or anything that you would have to rely on in a moment of like actual danger, I don't know if they did back in the day, but I personally probably wouldn't make a bear spear out of copper. Mm-hmm. Um, it work hardens, and if you got it down to a very nice little point, probably, but a bear spear in terms of what we're thinking, like a biface or a projectile point. Yeah. Um, I could see that snapping or folding or bending. That's definitely not the moment where you want that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, if you did, I could see wrapping copper and bone or bringing the copper point back to the haft. Hmm. Um, so that the point was not damaged, but it still had the ability to penetrate, penetrate and hemorrhage. But it would, in my unpracticed opinion, yeah. I don't think going up to a bear and like stabbing it with copper <laughs> would be... Very I mean, that, that's really the the next step of our experimentation is, is How would we do waking this? up a, a bear in hibernation. <laughs> yeah, yeah we're what are you doing do that? <laughs> waking something up in hibernation and <laughs> Yeah. So But yeah, and then sorry, to, to actually add like more substance to your question, um I think when people see copper, they immediately associate it with leadership and mm-hmm. everybody knowing that that person provides for their community. Of this goes back at least a thousand years? At least, at least. That we can prove. But that's not a, it started a thousand years ago. That's, it could have been long before then. That's, right? yeah, that's when we can say we definitively see this in the record. Yeah. Are there, are there stories that, reference that birth of copper working whether it was a thousand years ago or or longer there might be why i say there might be is part of our work with this copper is we're learning that our perspectives are so drastically different fundamentally from dene a thousand years ago that when we first hear a story it's all this acid tripping high abstract concept you know it's like Hmm grandmother spider is weaving her silk web to drop children down from the sky when really that that sounds crazy to us but if you were in Dene context you would know like this old woman threw a rope down so these kids could climb off a cut bank Mm -hmm. that's what that story is talking about and if you're Dene that's obvious if you're me who is you know I'm I'm from the village I grew up Dene but yeah. I have a Western lexicon. Yeah, yeah. And so to me, that sounds like just a trip. 
Um, and so why I say there might be stories about these copper knives is there very well could be. However, we could be not understanding that because of language and concept translation. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I suspect that um, those, those stories are known, but not really, um, haven't really been discussed to the right person. Mm -hmm. So uh, that'll be research questions for, for Evie. Very um, cool. Yeah. But uh, we, we were told by an elder in uh, the Copper River area who was um, grand granddaughter of one of the last copper chiefs. The story she told was that Raven brought the first copper knife um, to the Atna people. And Raven is sort of a, he's a, a transformer trickster archetype. And Raven's stories are often, uh, tell us how the world world is and why it is the way it is. Mm -hmm. And uh, so tying, when, when something is tied back to Raven, it's a very fundamental part of, of, of one's culture and uh, something that's considered very ancient, almost uh, mythic in, yeah. you know, a real high, high sense. Um, maybe now would be a good time to ask you about some of your attempts to, to reconstruct these, these methods of smithing and making these knives. I, I imagine that was a big story of trial and error, right? Hardcore. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so Evie and I talked about this for uh, several years, traditionally. So I, 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 would, I did a bunch of reading on just whatever um, bits of information uh, that, I, that I could find, and I'd pass them on to Evie. She had all her stories and stuff. We talked about it a lot. And then finally, I think it was uh, six or seven years ago, um, we finally stitched together enough money. Neither one of us had, you know, at the time really had... Uh, much disposable income so we were you know just getting a few dollars here and there we finally had enough to pool together to start to build um so wait you you forge. funded this yourselves not yet oh, wow yeah. no yeah. no That's grant <laughs> no there's nothing. no grant Man. funding that that went into this honestly i don't we made a meme about this because yeah. <laughs> it felt like we were just hanging out like we were very academically interested in this but it had nothing to yeah. do with our careers yeah and we didn't set out to say, "Hey, let's let's do a study and right. we're going to do an experimental and, archaeology right. no, project very, and present at a conference." And yeah, it was very like it just developed as our friendship continued to yeah. develop and yeah. grow. And so at at one point, somebody was like, "Hey, you need to come do a talk on this at this conference," and we were like, <laughs> <laughs> "They've caught us. The fun is over. <laughs> this is officially this is research." Now work. <laughs> So when we talk about this, it becomes very uh, research-oriented. It sounds like it's this incredible research project. It never was. Um, it's all a shame. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we, we patched together enough um, money uh, to uh, put together, a, um, build a forge. We built one in sort of, I guess we should say, Western style. There's actually no uh, data on what a native forge looked like. Mm -hmm. um, and there's... Uh, people would talk about, oh, copper was just cold hammered or mm -hmm. copper was annealed in heat, but nobody, there was no details beyond that. And so we were all just kind of like... Everyone's kind of shooting in the dark a little bit. Yeah. And well, the method just didn't make sense to us. Right. And then too, like, I wonder how much of this is just aunts and uncles and grandparents not really knowing and thinking they mm -hmm. know and then passing on what they think happened. Is because this... as we discussed, like, all. I'll offer my own opinions 
through based on our research as to why I think it was or was not cold hammered. But yeah, yeah. Um, two, the only descriptions of anything re- resembling even close to forging I got from my grandfather and uncle Fred, and the same hardening and annealing methods you can use for bone and stone also apply to copper. Oh, interesting. Which I have verified through our our practice. But not to cut you off, but that is a thing, is that there's this huge, not huge, among people who do this, Yeah. there's this discussion as to whether or not they, they heat forged at all. And I'm saying, yeah, they had to, there's no way they couldn't have. But anyway, yeah, sorry. Yeah, there was um, the, a lot of people were saying, well, um, the Atna just uh, cold hammered. They would get these uh, nut copper nuggets. Yeah. They would cold hammer them, which basically you're not adding heat to the process. You're just taking uh, a, a nugget and yeah. hammering it flat, which sounds like it will work when you're just ta- speaking in English um, about it. But problem is... Uh, copper work hardens. And so as you continue to hammer copper, mm-hmm. the molecules get closer together. Over time, that will flake. If there are any impurities in that copper, which if you're using it in the form that the right, ancestors did. Right, just natural did, occurring copper. It's going to fall apart all over the place. Yeah. To cold hammer an entire knife, I just don't think that's Or even possible. an arrowhead, really, yeah. Yeah, just because there's so much shaping and there's so much... Because I've also had it described to me how to get the impurities out using small amounts of heat and kneeling yeah. so that the copper doesn't get so hard and flaky that it turns into essentially copper dust and copper bits that are unusable. Because again, there's a huge difference between smelting, forging, and removing impurities because they didn't have smelting available to them. I mean, they had no container for it. They had no way to facilitate that. Mm -hmm. Just so listeners know what smelting is, is that a lot of uh, metals don't exist in a pure metallic form in the natural world. They exist as, as an ore where it's, you know, it's oxidized, bonded to another metal. And so you have to apply uh, heat um, and other, sometimes other chemical means to extract that metal. Here in, uh, in the Copper River Valley, they actually come out in nuggets um, and uh, you can find it just in pure nuggets. And so um, experimenting and learning how to extract it as an ore uh, didn't need to happen. Yeah, yeah. Here. Um, so it was very, uh, the Atna were lucky in, yeah. in finding it like that. Because, <laughs> yeah, you didn't have to heat it all the way up and, you know, melt it and then put it in the mold because you just, you don't have to. That's amazing. That's wonderful. You can just, you can kind of soften it up yeah. so it's like Play-Doh and then, you know, you work it. And then you shape it, yeah. And the impurities will just come out. <laughs> How long does it, does it take? I mean, I assume, it, it, I, I would assume it's safe to say that you're still not master copper workers but is part of the cost or the value in in ancient trade networks is is it the material itself like the copper is rare and only comes from this one place and has to be carried a long way or is it a lot of work to get a a nice copper knife made does it does it take a huge amount of time so if we were going to go pure traditional and Mm -hmm. take iron from a river copper from a river in ore form and do it. I could see spending an entire day and a half on the process um, because you're not just looking at making the knife. You're looking at preparing the fire, preparing yourself. Yeah, yeah. Making sure there's no kids running around, making mm-hmm. sure, you know, aunt or uncle who wants to be part of that process is there. Um, also, hydration is huge. That's something that blacksmiths never talk about. But if you stand anywhere near a fire the way you have to when, when you're just 
going in and making these knives, like, yeah. you will guzzle water. Like, we're talking gallons. <laughs> um, so, yeah, there's a lot of prep that would go into it. So there's a lot of cost in terms of time and sweat and energy. Yeah, and it's not a bad this. cost at all. Yeah, yeah. Um, It's definitely not a negative. But I do think that affects the value in them because, you know, as, as we mentioned, these copper shamans, I'm just speaking as a blacksmith. I have no idea what would go into spiritually preparing myself for that mm-hmm. if I were doing it like legit traditional. The uh, the copper extraction points or mines uh, were also owned individually, um, and this was one of the few. They were owned individually. Yeah, so this was one of the few places where um, individuals in Diné culture actually owned something on land in every sense of what we consider land ownership today. And, you know, you, it was death if you were if you were caught stealing copper from one of those places. Um, and, uh, and that's very, very interesting because otherwise, um, you know, ownership of the land was not, uh, was not, a, you know, traditionally... Uh, acceptable uh, treatment of the landscape. Yeah, those, the objectifying those of were... it wasn't really a concept mm-hmm. um, because one of the reasons place names are so important is a strong t- tradition as you're moving across land is to explain to your younger family whose territory is whose, who takes care of what land, and who is allowed to hunt what animals. Um, and that directly corresponds to where those animals are. Yeah, Because if yeah. I'm standing up on, like... Uh, the big hill behind the village and my uncle points to the mountain range and says over that mountain range you don't hunt anything unless you ask those people it's not because they own objectively the land it's because they take care of that area yeah so the fact that they geographically owned this object is very interesting Hmm. because that's not how they conceptualized the land do you ever ever think about it's it's funny in a weird way by trying to learn partially from scratch do you have a feeling of sort of um walking in the footsteps of some of the early experiments that must have happened like when this when this technology was first developed a thousand years ago or even two thousand years ago or more i'm sure there must have been a lot of trial and error and experimentation and do you ever feel like you're kind of an echo of that um i do yeah um you know, a thousand years ago, somebody was doing this, and I actually don't feel like they were at a disadvantage mm-hmm. at all. I don't think, and this is all speculation. Like they weren't having to unlearn. Yeah, they weren't. <laughs> they weren't having <laughs> yeah. to unlearn iron right. <laughs> for one thing. But then also, you know, I'm when I was talking about like the temperature difference and how you can taste it and feel it in your skin and in your mouth. Like you, you can feel the temperature in your mouth when you breathe, mm-hmm. um, and there's varying degrees. And those are things that I don't often articulate to people. Um, And there are other senses, too. Like when you walk outside and you smell, um, there's a huge difference between 10 above and 10 below. Yeah. And there's a huge difference to what it does to you physiologically. And a lot of people don't seem to clock that. Um, Indigenous crafters do Mm -hmm. because there's so much that you're doing with the material and how it interacts with the rest of the the environment that you don't have control of, you need to be constantly correcting for things like humidity, temperature, heating, cooling. And so when I'm, when I'm working copper, I'm almost always 
just sad that I never, I, I was not able to grow up at the knee of like an uncle who taught me flint napping mm-hmm. or, you know, I, I didn't grow up watching this for 15 years of my life because I will not, it will take me another three to four decades to become so instinctually aware of copper and heat and mm-hmm. how it works to be at that level. Like it's going to take decades of just doing it over and over and over yeah. until I form that muscle memory. And sometimes it makes me sad, but like, that's generally what I'm thinking about is like, these guys had so much knowledge about working with their hands and working with fire and heat and, uh, the heat that a fire leaves over. Um, because a lot of those flint nappers, like we, we, we as archaeologists hold flint napping in very high regard and the bifaces, we find the projectile points, you know, colloquially arrowheads and spear points. Yeah. We put this, put them on a really high shelf. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And they deserve to be there, but we also need to understand that at one point, somebody who had just grown up the first two decades of his life watched somebody doing this. They watched somebody read the stone. They watched somebody know their tools, and they learned every vein of that material. So the fact that they could make these things is incredible, but to that person, it was almost like swimming. Right. It was yeah. almost like breathing. So... Th- and on one hand, this is incredible. It's an amazing, incredible skill. But on the other, when you're living as a Dene person, you know, it's it's what you do. It's like walking and running. And so that takes up a large portion of my mind while we're doing this. One thing that also really has struck me is how much of a community effort mm-hmm. it is. Um, this isn't something that Evie or I could go out and just do by ourselves even working with a a knife like the two of us can do this together um and that's a minimum Mm -hmm. it would really be a pain (laughs) to try to do this uh by myself or for evie to do it by herself and uh and we have a little bit of technology that helps us we try to do it as much by hand as possible but Mm -hmm. i think uh, sometimes we have like a third person just around just to run little menial tasks here and there, which makes it even easier. Um, I imagine that there was several people that were helping blow on the fire to get it hot. Um, I definitely were using charcoal um, and whether they were just uh, collecting that passively from burned trees or, or producing that, um, having using charcoal to make a fire, you're not losing uh, heat, excess heat to uh, steam waste. So if you, you can, you can use green wood, you know, sap, uh, wood that's very wet to, to um, uh, build a fire and eventually the fire will burn. But you're losing like a tremendous amount of heat mm-hmm. uh, that just gets sucked up into the steam, translating that water into fire or into steam. And uh, so when you use charcoal instead, you're not all that heat is just radiating out into infrared radiation. And, and uh, so it's very much more efficient way. Uh, but you still have to blow the fire hotter. Yeah. And this is something we have no oral history about, at least that Evie or I have, have heard. But I suspect there was several people with bone straws that were actively um, hmm. blowing on those hearths when needed when that copper went back in uh, to, to heat that metal real quick. Uh, so um, I appreciate that a lot more, just the, the number of people that actually went in to create these implements. It was definitely like... Right, not really just like a casual, okay, right. I'm going to go make this on my own kind of a thing, but a, a little bit of an event sort of. Yeah, um, yeah. and it probably... Um, lasted until uh 
the object was finished. It wasn't something like, hey, come back next week and we'll finish this project. Um, that's something that we have noticed is that once we start, it's much easier to just go until the knife is done um, rather than trying to come back and get everything heated up and going again. It's a real uh, it takes process. takes a lot of energy. Yeah. Energy in the way of like manpower and, you know, fuel energy. Time. Because too, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the, the bellows because that relates back to your question earlier about how long did it take and that's part of the prep I was thinking about is like how long is it going to take to find three or four people that aren't going to pass out <laughs> after a half hour just blowing on this fire um, right <laughs> and then too like I also wonder about whether or not they needed bellows because in my early experimental days as a young teenager with this as I learned that you can actually direct heat really easily in fires you make and i don't know if you've seen oh but the way you set wood to burn uh you know if your fire is already going like you can take logs and wall it off inside you can also arrange coals so that you're actively directing the heat and you're actively directing what burns and when and so i'm wondering if they didn't do that in lieu of uh having people come to manabellas because it's, it takes a lot less energy to just move around and, you know, burn your face a bit than it does to have a bunch of people hanging out. So, yeah, these are, these are the, the, <laughs> the questions that Evie and I start yeah. discussing when we really yeah. get into this and then, you know, it reaches sort of a critical mass point where we're like, all right, let's go outside. Yeah, we got to do this. <laughs> we got to um, test this out. <laughs> I'm actually looking forward to relining my forge here very shortly. Yeah. Um, Forges don't last forever. And uh, the don't. ones that we built, um, well, let's see, I think we got 10 knives out of it. Uh, by the end of by the end of it, um, and now we've had to uh, now we have to rebuild everything. Um, yeah. I'm trying to think of a good closing question. I usually ask something about like recommended readings for people who are interested in in, in learning more. I'm not sure if that's well. Yeah, we. I mean, or... we. I talk a little bit um, in one of the uh, chapters in the book. Um, uh, about of the middle ten and all. Yeah, about our work, <laughs> um, our experimental work on that. Um, otherwise. Uh, Look into Dr. Corey Cooper's um, work. He's published a lot of um, papers on uh, native cop Atna copper use. Your listeners will have to do their own <laughs> research on that. <laughs> I'm going to be doing some research myself. <laughs> this got me really excited to learn more about it. So, yeah. Well, thanks for taking cool. the time. Absolutely. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's super cool. Yeah, I love talking about copper, so this isn't out of the way at all. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody ever wants to hear about it is the problem. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of The Tell. Until next time. Hi, everybody. If you enjoyed the podcast and you want to help me talk to more people in more places, please consider donating. You can do so on my Patreon as a recurring donor, as well as on my website if you'd rather do a one-time donation. The links are patreon.com slash sebastianweatherby and www.sebastianweatherby.com. Show notes are also available on my website, where you can find citations and comments and other relevant information about the things we talked about today. Thanks again for listening.